Welcome to the Probate Realtor Show, your one source for selling and buying real estate through trust and probate. Hear directly from the best attorneys and trusted advisors on how executors and administrators navigate the probate process in and out of court. Being a personal representative or successor trustee can be a daunting task, and often beneficiaries don't have a clear plan. Let us help you make the right decision for your clients, your family, and your legacy. And now, here's your host, the probate realtor himself, Matias Baker Mazzucci. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Probate Realtor Show. Today, we are talking to Tanner Pittman. Tanner, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tanner is an estate planning attorney. He practices in Georgia and Alabama. I know we are located in, in California, but sometimes to really understand, you know, what, what these attorneys do, you have to see, you know, how it's done around the country. So we are very, we are very lucky to have you on the show, Tanner. The focus of our episode, it's going to be uh, how to avoid estate litigation. And you have a practice. We've had an opportunity to talk and connect before. What I wanted to ask you about is uh, what are some of the things that over the years you have seen uh, that have triggered uh, litigation in, in, the, in the estate world? Sure. Well, Matias, as you were saying, I, I do estate planning for clients, but we also engage in estate resolution. So mm -hmm. probate resolution and trust resolution. And, and we litigate quite a bit. Um, it's an exciting aspect of our practice. Right. And, and the, um, the cases are far from dry. They involve very peculiar factual circumstances. But I think the theme in a lot of estate litigation is that of surprise. Mm -hmm. So by that, I mean that. And I think I point the, candidate, the men here, for whatever reason, more than, more than their spouses, more than the women. Mm -hmm. Men seem to think that it's a good strategy to make a, a lot of really good legal binding, legally binding documents mm -hmm. and then just tuck them away and not let their their beneficiaries or their heirs uh, know what their plans are. But, you know, as I'm clearly implying that that leads to litigation. You and I could draw up a trust for you and your mm -hmm. family that would be. You know, lay, lay people would say and lawyers would say it's airtight, but any anybody can file anything in court that they want to, regardless of how legitimate your trust is. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to say that the problem is surprise is obviously to say what the answer is. And like so many answers in, in the legal world, it's it's simple, but it's not easy. And, and the answer is to let people know what you're doing. And to have those hard conversations with your children, you know, while you while you're competent and while you still can for, for children, not even necessarily for planners, but for children, maybe even the answer is to have those hard conversations with your parents and siblings, whatever, you know, the, the televangelist that your parents really want to give their estate to, whatever it may be. Uh, right. it, it's great to clear the air. And some cultural traditions are better about this than others. Mine is not. Uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestants would rather just, uh, you know, have all, all disagreements in the family with tones and glances than than coming right out with the words they want to say. But that is so true. I'm glad you actually brought that up because you yeah, know I'm yeah. Italian with an Italian yeah. background. We are kind of like a soap opera household, yeah. you know, people. <laughs> and no, but that is so true. Like people do forget to to make their family part of the process in a sense that. 
I have seen this, you know, in my in my in my personal um, practice of selling real estate. When a successor trustee called me and said, "I did not know that I was the successor right. trustee. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea." And now I'm the successor trustee, and my siblings resent me for it because somehow. And I wish my parents would have had that conversation with everybody and explained why they had selected me, rather than you know making my my siblings feel like oh maybe they didn't love them as much or or things like that. So that's a very important important thing you mentioned. Now, something that we talked about, you sometimes are brought in to deal with estate plans that was done prior mm. to your involvement. So somebody had done the estate plan or a will prior mm. to, to you getting involved. And then when the litigation starts or, or when problem arises, I should say, right. you yeah. come in, you come in to, to, you know, to rescue kind of like a superhero, rescue the day, save the day. Now, what are the things that like you've noticed? A superhero who's, who's paid the same, whether he wins or loses. Become <laughs> yeah. a superhero. That, yes. that would make for as exciting comic book reading as. Yeah, as that's true. Comic. That's true. But let me, let me ask you a question about the language that is used in, in this thing. When, when you are conscious of the language they use, you don't want to use ambiguous language. What has led you to be so adamant about, you know, like we got to use clear language? I guess that would be the right question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a good question to ask. I think every, every attorney um, is, likes to be very, very clear in their, in their mm-hmm. wording. I haven't seen as many estates go sideways because of some ambiguous language as much as uh, just, a, just a misunderstanding of okay. how the law is going to operate on the language they do use. So every now and then you'll have the estate where they'll say, you know, they'll say my grandchildren. And the question is, well, did, did they really mean the, uh, you know, uh, frozen embryo who was brought, you know, born 18 months after their parents died. But I think more often, and I've got an example, which I think illustrates this very well, more often than not, what clients encounter is, is that they, or even a generalist lawyer, mm-hmm. will... We'll write, write a will. In, in Georgia and Alabama, we, we write wills primarily. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, probate can be simple when you're not litigating over it right. uh, in our in our states, especially so in Georgia. And so the living trust is maybe not as current in, in Georgia as it is or in Alabama as it is in California, although there are plenty of good reasons to do one sometimes. Yeah. In any event, you know, I, I had a case that took us a while to resolve where there was a, I mean, these details are not for the children, but I, I just come out with it. There was a, a millionaire industrialist, just a classic, exactly uh-huh. that. He was a millionaire industrialist who wrote a will that said everything to my wife, and if she predeceases me, then to my son. So it's standard as they come. Right. Well, he wrote the will in, let's say, 1995, but by 2010, I can't remember if it's the year he died, but let's say that was the year he died. He had had two children out of wedlock, and he was married, obviously, at the, at the time that he died. Well, the will was notable for what it didn't say. And it didn't say, by the way, I'm writing this will contemplating the possibility of having future children. And mm-hmm. if I do, uh, then those children are, are disinherited. And, and if you don't say that in your will... 
which you could almost understand why he he wouldn't want to yeah, be of course. so notorious. I mean, yeah. his wife may have said, why would you need to say that? But if your lawyer doesn't include that verbiage, what what you run the risk of with an out-of-wedlock child is that the law creates an intestacy for every out-of-wedlock child who's not contemplated in the will. And what that means is that that, that out-of-wedlock child or even in wedlock child, I mean, certainly, right. uh, but usually that's not a problem. But that uncontemplated child gets the share of your estate that they would have gotten had you died without a will. Mm. But everybody in your will gets the share that they were going to get in your will. And, and right. the upside of that for this millionaire was that his two uncontemplated and out of wedlock children were set to receive 44% of his estate because mm -hmm. he, he had three children, two of whom were uncontemplated, and in, in Georgia, the wife gets a third. So if you quickly do the math, you see that that's, they each get two shares of 66%. Um, that's almost half to um, wow. children that his family didn't know about. So I think... I, I, I think there and they were successful. They were successful in, in, in obtaining that because the law was in. We, yeah. Yeah. I was their lawyer. Um, ah, okay. We, right. We did obtain that inheritance. At the end of the day, it was not a flat 44% because a lot of his wealth was just in stock shares in a metal stamping and machining company and, and factory. <laughs> so we, we wound up. Settling for more cash, more of a cash settlement put into a trust. Yes. For the children, it was fortunate for my clients that right. they received that inheritance. Lord knows they were entitled to it. They, it's not their fault that their father bore them out of wedlock, but it, it would be safe also to say that's not the plan his attorney intended when he right. drafted that will. It, it, his attorney was fine, but he was a generalist. And didn't um, make that contemplation include that important clause in the will. So that, yeah, that led to litigation. Yeah. Now, now blended families um, is uh, is often is often um, the cause of litigation. Am I right. am I correct, Tanner? Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that's right. I see. Is I think that folks assume that the law does with blended families what they would sort of want mm -hmm. to happen. And that's often not the case, you know, just depending upon the default plan that folks have. So there are two kinds right. of defaults. There's the I love you will, where I write in my will everything to my wife and then to my children if she predeceases me. Right. Uh, or there's intestacy if I fail to write a will. Right. And either of those two cases are, are easily the runaway majority of even blended families of, of the way folks plan. Mm. But those, um, lead to unfortunate results for uh, children or stepchildren, as the case may be, just depending on the spouse that dies first. And as you know, I mean, your question almost contemplates, we have a, a not complex trust that can address this. Right. And, and, and it used to be that uh, in, in just every will you saw a, a spouse would leave to their surviving spouse their their inheritance for life and then on to the kids. Right. Well, in blended families, it has to be a little, little bit more complex than that, but but not so much so that the trust is going to break. You mentioned the fact that in, in, in Georgia and Alabama, you often use um, a will 
in place of a trust. But when, in the case of a more, when do you find yourself having to recommend a trust? Oh, yeah. And you know this, probably most of the people watching this in California and elsewhere know this, but the, the beauty of a trust, and by a trust, we're talking about the estate planning trust. So right. We call this the revocable living trust. Um, I think I said the last time we talked, Matthias, you know, people ask me to ask me once to speak about the different kinds of trust. Absolutely. It's like talking about the different kinds of contracts. You know, you, <laughs> there, are, there are a million different kinds of trusts. Right. But the one that we're talking about here is a is a revocable living trust in most circumstances. And the notion of that is that we, you know, I, my wife and I have a trust. Let us say we, we have then taken all of our property and titled it such that it's, it's not in our names individually. It's in our names as trustees of the trust. Uh, that property may be bank accounts or our home, et cetera. Or either we've made it pay on death to the trust, or we've done something special with IRAs because they're special. Our general plan is that when we die, our property isn't really ours. It, it, it had been in the trust. Mm -hmm. And the trust has a not perpetual life, but it outlives us. Uh, so the notion of putting all of our property in the trust is that is that since it's not titled in our names when we die. There's nothing to go to the probate court. Our heirs mm -hmm. don't have to go their hat in hand and, and wait six months for creditors' claims to, to clear and, and serve everybody and their brother with notice. Uh, instead, since our stuff, however defined, is in the trust, uh, all that happens when we die is the trustees change. So in, in our case, if we had a trust, our, you know, our daughter would be the next trustee in line. Whereas when we were alive, the trust maintain the property for for our benefit. After we die, we right. give our daughter some marching orders. So the orders are, of course, just divide everything up between you and your siblings. So what when is that called for? Well, I mean, you know, you don't have to be too astute to see that that's that's the same thing that happens with the will. Mm -hmm. You can write that in the will as well. It's I think it's called for anytime that you want to avoid the probate courts. And there's some some reasons why, especially for uh, in Georgia, where probate is kind of simple, we still want to use them. And and one of them uh, has to do with multi-state ownership of property. So mm -hmm. if I have whatever a house in South Carolina and mineral rights in Colorado, and my house in Georgia, a will is fine. But it has to be probated in three different states when I die, mm. take care of those different real estate interests. And, and yet every state in the union recognizes a, 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 the basics of a living trust. Right. Uh, so if I have that, those properties scattered hither, there, and yon, I can just change the deeds to the properties in the various states such that I own it as trustee. That's better. That way you don't have to do three probates when I die. Another, that makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. Another situation is notice. Sometimes there are family members that would be entitled to notice of probate. Um, an estranged child. I mean, we've all got families. You don't have to look too far in my family tree to find an estranged child somewhere. Right. And I know of plenty of them with clients. 
if when I die, my will is probated, almost every jurisdiction I'm aware of, certainly the two where I practice, require that even that estranged child get notice, personal notice of the probate. <laughs> and, and clients will ask, well, yeah, well, what if I just write them out of the will? And but there, therein lies the rub. I mean, you you can write him out, and he gets notice of that, or she gets notice of that, because obviously your heirs are the ones who the law would say could challenge a will. So notice is required to your heirs, or to your next of kin, as they say in Alabama. And giving that notice of probate is almost, you know, for the estranged child, sometimes that's an affirmative like invitation. Hey, you get a, you get a challenge. You want to lodge to this? Come on, now's the time. The notice yes. Here's how you do this. And a trust doesn't contain any kind of invitation. It's um, it's a private document. Obviously, if there's real estate, we need to make a change of the deed in the deed room, but we can kind of do that at our leisure. My family records deeds all the time. I don't get notice of them. Right. Because deeds are not things you need to get notice of, even though they're a public document. So it's it is, I think, in those situations where we have blended families, maybe some estranged children, interstate or multi-state property, we guide clients to trusts. And then generally, I, you know, they, they are more popular for many clients who, who have seen the way they can operate when their, their own parents have passed away, let us say. Mm-hmm. It just seemed the, the clean way in which, without going to probate court, you know, everything just cleanly moved from the one generation to the next. Uh, and that has some appeal, even though the costs of a, of setting up a trust are higher. They, I mean, they're naturally higher because we're kind of doing the probate now rather than after you die. We're, we're retitling everything now. That's great. That's actually a very nice way to put it. I, I had never, you know, I, I do talk to a lot of attorneys. I love it. You're like, you're, you're doing the probate already. So you've done it. Everything is titled into the trust. And, and that makes total sense. Now, going back to what you talked about, the invitation to challenge, you're right, right? The notice and this and that, and somebody can can challenge it. When clients come to you um, and they're like, look, I would like to challenge a will, generally speaking, how quickly are you able to tell whether they have any grounds to stand on or whether you're like, look, you know, this is a long yeah. shot. You, I don't want to take up your time necessarily. I love this question. Wills are hard to challenge. Will contest that I carried out all the way to the finish without settlement. I, actually, I don't even think I have fully challenged a will all the way to a, 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 a verdict. Um, mm-hmm. I've settled will contests, and then I've been on the defending end of a will where mm-hmm. we have held a, against a challenge. And the one, you know, I mean, you settle a case on pretty good terms, then it's like right. a, of a win. You, you could probably anticipate yourself without, you know, a law degree, the things that make a will more imminently challengeable than, yeah. than the next will. So. Typically, I know this isn't what Daddy wanted, is not good grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but recently, for example, uh, up in Georgia, we had a will contest uh, where there was a fine lawyer on the other side from me, but he didn't do the will. This, this mm-hmm. will was a, a do-it-yourself job by the family okay. uh, on, on a deathbed. That is to say, they signed it you know, at, at the side of what became the testator's deathbed. And uh, 
that nobody who was taking under the will or the previous will that I was propounding, nobody in either situation were children. There were kind of some some folks that were raised as though they were the testator's children. So that, that made it a little tricky. Usually if, if I go to your deathbed, Matthias, or let's say you come to mine and, you know, as the viewers may know, you're not kin to me, and suddenly I write a will to you disinheriting my own children, that's pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, it's it a little bit more complicated when it's, you know, sort of strangers to the bloodline versus yet other strangers to the yeah. bloodline. Uh, that that was my my case in Georgia recently, but but it was a deathbed will by a fellow who was only groaning out syllables. The the uh, the folks who pushed the wheel at him and notarized it themselves were very good friends, and and uh, I think one was even a family member of the people who took under the wheel, mm -hmm. and and they made they did as it turns out us the courtesy of making a video of the signing. It was more detrimental to their case than than positive, right? Because the the gentleman who was signing probably, like you said, was not didn't look competent. He, he was not. Uh, they they had a misunderstanding of what they had a misunderstanding of what the standard was for making a will. Um, so it would, yeah, I, some things to look for, I guess, if you're coming to me with your will contest case, you know. Are the natural objects of your bounty being disinherited? In other words, mm -hmm. is someone taking in place of a child? Um, you know, what, what was competence like uh, at the time the will was signed? Has there been a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia? Do we have medical records that show that kind of thing? You know, who, who was under whose sway were you when it was signed? I think this is important as well. Oh, I will tell you. Actually, no, excuse me. I did challenge one successfully. Uh, it was against a pro se fella in, in Georgia. He had gotten out of jail. And pro se means he didn't have a lawyer. He had gotten out of jail. And this this is one, um, it was almost a stranger than fiction kind of case. He had gotten out of jail and gone and lived with his mother, who was my client's grandmother, took her to an attorney. He was a very good attorney to write a will, and the attorney thought she was competent to make it. She seemed that way, but uh, seven weeks, six weeks or seven weeks after he took her to the lawyer and she made the will, he attacked her, and I'll okay. spare you the details. It was a really brutal attack. Oh, wow. At the time I got the case, he was in jail for this attack. Oh, wow. And, and my clients, who were the, the takers under a previous will, uh, that, that she had both enacted like 15 years prior and then amended to restate it in the same way a few years after that. They they both said that she was under the undue influence of this fellow, her son, because she was. She, she was right. very afraid of him as the attack bore out. So uh, undue influence is, is certainly a factor. You know, these details, there's no one... Sort of smoking gun factor. Yes, it's all for kind of for a finder of fact, a judge or jury to decide. But that that did go our way. We didn't have a a jury trial, right? On paper, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I I, I could talk to you forever about these oh, things, and, and and I love the stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking shop too. Someone yeah, needs, yeah, someone yeah absolutely, absolutely. But let me let's talk about your journey uh, of how you arrived where you are today, oh, yeah. which is always very fascinating for our audience. Uh, when you were in law school, I guess 
Did you think you were gonna you were gonna be practicing this law or or even actually even before that? How did you get to law school? When did, did you want to be a lawyer when you were a little kid? No, I I was sure I was gonna be an international businessman, even <laughs> in, even in law school. Um, I, I I really enjoyed languages in college. Uh-huh. Still still do. Had traveled a little bit during my mm-hmm. college career, and I was sure that be it through a business major, which was my undergraduate major, or my eventual law degree, I'd be doing that. And now, except for the occasional German client with a, you know, some interest in a Georgia estate, uh, I haven't used the languages too much. But yeah, that that was the journey. Um, I would not have told you estates and probate law was going to be my life's calling, but, you know, it, it is such an interesting area of law. As as you know well, and that yeah, absolutely led led to this. That's that, yeah, that that's fascinating. So in the end, you ended up you you graduated from law school. Did you go into private practice? Did you join a, a larger firm? Yeah, no, I, I I so I graduated from law school, and and uh, my my wife graduated with her PhD at the same time. No, nice. uh, so she had to do a nationwide search for her PhD job. Okay. Wound up working at Auburn University, and I did a you know tri county area search for my law job, and I wound up uh-huh. working for two really fine attorneys uh, over in Georgia, just over the river from, okay. from the university town we're in right now in Alabama. And uh, so I was with them for about two and a half years till I hung up my shingle and, and focused on state law. That makes sense. Very yeah. nice. Um, now, last time we talked. Uh, we had a little, I love it because I mean, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to bring it up. You, know, right. you talked about midlife crisis and people buy a sports car. And can you tell our audience oh. what you did? Uh, you, you, you did not buy yourself a, sport car, a sports car. What did you do? I didn't, I didn't rule out that I bought a sports car. <laughs> You're right, right? As, you, as far as you know, it's possible. I also bought a sports car. I didn't buy a sports car. I know I, I, I bought a violin. Oh, living, that's wonderful. Living in, uh, it, speaking of midlife turns of events. We uh, uh, we li- were living abroad for a year uh, with our three mm-hmm. kids uh, over in Romania. And um, my children, my wife, are, are uh, part of the Hungarian minority in Romania. Okay. And I was fascinated with the fact that it seemed like everywhere you go, an, an emergent property of large groups of Hungarians is that the stringed instruments come out. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and, uh, and so I got interested in violin when I was over there and and then when I, I think for my 40th birthday i got a violin and so I, it, it is possible to learn that instrument uh even late in life as it turns out but it's been a real love for me i wish i had more that's, time for it that's that that's wonderful i love that story i love yeah. that story um okay before i let you go i yeah. always like you know like it's a you know everybody loves information but it's you know it's always a personality thing in in in, in the world people love to know about people as as we have found out a little bit more about you i want to i have a list of 30 random questions and i want you to pick a number and i will ask that question uh-huh. and then we'll see where it takes us all right uh 1 to 30 I, I i choose number 26 26 okay 26 and it may mean to make you have to thumb to it so so okay um, i love it i love it okay, okay. What you got what is life's biggest mystery to you Oh, brother. You picked it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm responsible for that one. Um, 
we're we're Christians and life's biggest mysteries to me fall along Christian lines. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'll uh, just unashamedly say absolutely um, there are a number of Christian doctrines that are that we think beautiful and mysterious. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently in a podcast we were listening uh, to one. So Christians hold that uh, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. Right. Uh, and and that is a that's obviously, you know, if I told you this this tie is both fully tie and fully antelope, you would say that's not, you know, look again, Tim, that's <laughs> not quite right. Um, and that's a that's a mystery that uh is, is lo- lovely to us for so many doctrinal reasons, uh, but very hard to uh, wrap our minds around. We hope one day to have have resolution there. But that's, probably that's, on the other side of my estate plan, though. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that. I love the 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 personal thing. This is why 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 it's important. It's, mm. it's been such a pleasure to have you on oh, the show, Matthias. Tanner. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, I will um, we will make sure that you know we'll. We'll get the show out there and hopefully our audience, you know, whenever they are in, and anybody that it's in Georgia or Alabama will reach out to you. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's, yeah. it's been a tremendous pleasure. You're a delight to talk to. Oh, thank you. Okay. Uh, bye, everybody. Uh, we'll see you in the uh, next uh, episode. Thank you for listening to the Probate Realtor Show. Find more episodes and interact with us at probaterealtor.la. That's probaterealtor.la. Listen, ask questions, and get results. Don't forget to like and subscribe. The probate realtor Matias Baker Mazzucci is a licensed real estate broker in California DRE number 02054763. Any legal information provided is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing legal advice. Contact an attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal issue or problem. We make no guarantees as to the accuracy of any information. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.